Reputations are tricky things. A good one can be gone in an instant. A bad one can be impossible to shake. And that's as true for destinations as it is for people. I'm thinking about one destination in particular here. It's a vast country, the biggest in the world, spanning 11 time zones and an extraordinary range of topographies, from wild forests to vast inland lakes and active volcanoes, not to mention historic cities packed with imperial palaces and dazzlingly decorated churches. We're talking about Russia, a country that has long loomed large in history and politics, but that doesn't seem to make it onto most people's must-visit lists. And perhaps it's not that surprising, in the last century or so, Russia has lived through revolutions and wars and famines. And almost 30 years after the end of the Soviet Union, many of us still think of Russia as a place where the architecture is ugly, the winters are brutal and the food is grim. I'm Ulta Yonka and today on I Know This Place, we're going to try and take a different look at Russia and find out why it's actually a destination worth discovering. Joining me is a woman who has Russia in her blood. Australians know Ala Wolf Tusker as one of our food pioneers, the founder and culinary director of the acclaimed Lake House at Dalesford. She's also the daughter of Russian immigrants and a repeat visitor to her motherland. Ala, thanks for joining us. Pleased to be here. So for many of us, our impressions of Russian Russians are secondhand, gleaned from newspapers or Cold War thrillers. You had a very different experience growing up in a small in the Russian community as it was in Victoria. So tell me what what that experience of Russian culture was like. Well, it was a small community, actually, quite small, um, and it was very much centred around the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and so, all of these emigres, I would say that probably ninety percent of them came after the Second World War. A few a little bit earlier. Um, some, some had fled the Soviet Union or the new Soviet Union after the revolution via China and Harbin and were part of the sort of the Russian settlement in China. Um, but most actually had come after the Second World War. And they were almost entirely still practicing Russian Orthodox very much. Uh, and the church kind of really ruled our lives in terms of the feast days and being the hub of the community. Um, how we ate was predicated by the feast days of the church because we had Lent and then the celebratory, um, the celebratory feasts around big days. Um, and uh, probably 90% of the people still kind of believed in um, saving Russia from the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Um, and still followed uh, all of the sort of historical special days of the Tsar and the Tsar's birthday and the Tsar's family's birthdays and um, all of the special things, uh, all the special days that were celebrated for in pre-revolutionary pre pre Russia. And we certainly didn't have the Soviet flag displayed. We had the, the red, white and blue flag displayed in the church hall. Um, and we followed all of the rituals of the, of the pre-revolutionary pre Russia. So, so talk me through what one of the big feasts, like Easter is a big celebration, right? Easter was always bigger than uh, Christmas uh, in Russian, in the Russian Orthodox. I mean, it's that because it coincides in Europe with spring, which mm -hmm. is that time of renewal and resurrection. And that's why the egg is such a big symbol of Easter that whole kind of new new birth, new life thing. And it was a very special time for, for 
cooking and baking because it came straight after Lent. So you, you would have had uh, not very much meat, mostly fish and vegetables for 40 days. And interestingly enough, 40 days started after what the English would call Shrove Tuesday, which mm -hmm. was this massive pancake day. So even that, you know, that was the last time you actually had something really fabulous. But the Russians eat pancakes blini with sour cream and caviar, of course, or sour cream and herring, quite different. It's not a sweet thing, not usually a sweet thing. So we would have had that and then had 40, 40 days of Lent and then we had the Russian, uh, Russian Easter. So my mother baking for days and everything smelling so rich of spice and um, grated citrus zest and soaking dried fruits uh, marinating that were going into the various cakes and things. And the ritual around Easter is that <clears throat> just before Easter Sunday, uh, everyone would bring bits of what was going to be the post-midnight feast, so the post-Easter Sunday feast, um, in a basket and we would have kulichi that it would be baked in tall tins, this tall Easter bread with candles on top of it, and um, all the coloured eggs that as we kids had died, hard-boiled eggs that we had died, and then uh, bits and pieces of all kinds of things, meat in jelly, holodets it was called, and just delicious things that, we, that were all part of this basket that was carried to the church um, for, the, for the blessing. So, you would go into the hall and there would be hundreds of these baskets lined up full of food. And during the, the ceremony that evening, the deacon or the archbishop would come out and bless all of the, the baskets with holy water and they would be ready for the feast after the, the very special church service. So the church service uh, would begin at, uh, you know, perhaps 10 o'clock. They're long services in Russian churches. Everyone stands. You don't sit in a church. And there would be so many people that we would be out in the street as well. But around about quarter to 12, um, the whole uh, congregation that were in the church would actually come out and join all the throngs that were outside and everyone would have candles. And all of the main icons of the church were brought out by the, the priests and the deacons and the archbishop. And they, there would be a three times passage around the block with all of these icons. And then um, and the choir would sing all the way. Oh, how So glorious. really special. So for us kids growing up and there'd be candles and we'd be running around the street and being able to do all sorts of things you're normally not allowed to do. And then um, the clergy would arrive back at the closed door of the, of the church and then the, there would be a knock on the door and the doors would open and then there would be the, the announcement uh, by the Archbishop of Christ has risen and all of the, the people out in the street would say, indeed, he has risen. Uh, would be the response and that would happen three times and then everyone would kiss each other three times <laughs> so you got to kiss the boys three times and the boys got to kiss you three times and then after that church service was over you would go to someone's house and it would be organized beforehand which of the friends gatherings that you would go to and everyone would bring their baskets and then all the food would be put out in the table so this would be already like one o'clock in the morning and then you'd be eating until about five o'clock in the morning with music and poetry and uh, you know we it was such a special day because we were allowed to stay up oh and it would have been deliriously yeah, fun it was wonderful and you know i remember sitting under the tables and listening to the adults sing and recite poetry it was very special and the food was always delicious so you've got this childhood experience that's mm. full of colour and flavour and abundance. And then on your first trip to Russia, <laughs> you're a teenager. It's the Soviet Union. I'm thinking, few, I'm thinking queues and food shortages mm. and 
Was it a huge shock to your system? It was. It was 1969 and I was a teenager and I was appalled. I mean, I, I loved the fact that I was surrounded by people speaking Russian because I grew up in such a Russian speaking, in a Russian family. So everything was very familiar, uh, the culture and the music and people talking. But there was a grimness. There was no doubt a, a grimness. And I was used to colour and food and hospitality and certainly you still found that amongst the people so there was some kind of law enacted where everyone could have a, a small patch of, of earth somewhere out on public land and they could cultivate it so people still grew their cucumbers and tomatoes and bottled them and had pickles and all of that kind of thing and, and created whatever they could themselves but the shortages were desperate so if you were invited to someone's house, somehow they would manage to cobble together still really uh, delicious things, obviously lots of vodka, but also they would find things or manufacture things and there would still be a good spread. Uh, you know, Russian salad made with beetroot and horseradish and um, sour cream, you know, all, all of those things that I can remember from my childhood would still be around. However, the Soviet cafeterias, which were, you know, the solution for feeding the citizens, uh, were terrible because really no one cared about them and they had numbers. So you might be eating in number 33 in Moscow, in number 78 in Odessa, in number 55 in in, in St. Petersburg, but the recipes were exactly the same. The <laughs> same brown sludge of sort of gravy on sausages with bad um, bad vegetables and inevitably served by very surly women <laughs> who kind of didn't like their jobs and really no one cared about them. And meanwhile, down the street, you know, people were queuing for bread and whatever. But you could go to these cafeterias and eat very cheaply. But it was not a patch on what, you know, what I understood of Russian food and Russian hospitality. So it was very sad. Well, the good news <coughs> is things have moved on a lot since then. So the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s. And in the following decades, you know, Russia put a lot into developing its tourism infrastructure. Mm. There are hotels, there are restaurants. Mm. But just when things seem to be on the up, poor old Russia, it always cops it. So at the moment, we've got these sanctions imposed on Russia. Mm. And I'm thinking that must have had a devastating effect on the food scene. You, you, you've been there. What did you notice? Well, it did and it didn't. So originally it did because... Um, Straight after the the Soviet Union fell and we had Perestroika, which was, you know, changing everything, there was this enormous thirst in Russia for everything Western. Mm. You know, it had been denied them for so long. I mean, you could, you know, you could, uh, on the streets of the Soviet Union, you could bargain your jeans, you know, and get things for your jeans because they, it, things were denied them for so long. So what we had from a food point of view is that we had this enormous influx of Western products after Perestroika that the everyone... The sushi boom. I remember yeah, that when sushi. every restaurant in Moscow and then in, 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 sorry, in St. Petersburg seemed to be a sushi restaurant and a really bad sushi restaurant. Totally. Well, I can remember, I think it was 97 or 98, that walking down Nevsky Perspect in St. Petersburg, desperate to find some really good Russian food and every single place was advertising sushi, you know, because it was the hot thing. And meanwhile, of course, McDonald's and Kentucky Fried and all of the fast foods had moved in and they had queues. Mm -hmm. So everyone was after something from the West. And when you went into the supermarkets, it was all about products from the West um, that everyone was after. And I think they'd forgotten their own abilities and their own manufacturing and their own agriculture. So now that 
you know, more recently these sanctions were imposed and it looked like it was going to create an enormous problem because Russia's appetite for the West hadn't waned, but they had to do something. And I think that the government did the right thing and, and ploughed a whole lot of resources into resurrecting local food manufacturing and agriculture. Um, and that resonated with a lot of young people. And all of a sudden we've got a burgeoning uh, regenerative farm industry, people interested in, you know, growing cattle that are grass-fed, um, being curious about the provenance of things, a, a viable cheese industry, you know, people producing really beautiful cheeses. Wow. I can certainly remember my parents' friends um, producing wonderful fresh curd cheeses because it was, you know, at a time when there wasn't much of that happening in Australia, so the emigres had to sort of create their own. Um, but beautiful small goods and all sorts of things are now being manufactured in, in Russia. So I think the sanctions have in fact um, increased the price, well, reminded the Russians of what they're capable of because during the Soviet era, the agriculture completely fell apart with those kolhozes, you know, the commun commun communal farms and things. Manufacturing, you know, was just, you know, it was really drab and everything. And then the West flooded everything with things that were delicious. And now I think they're becoming really, they understand that they can create delicious things themselves. So are we getting like hipster restaurants and farmers markets and things like oh, that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes, totally. Totally. There are tattooed baristas and... <laughs> Yes, we have, we have all of that. In fact, that's quite recognisable. But yes, farmers markets, absolutely. But peppered with um, a great deal of sort of traditional Russian stuff. So, I mean, you will, you will find people selling piroshki and... Which are the little Yeah, the little, dump, the little fried dumplings so or baked dumplings, yeah. And, and uh, you know, fresh curd on black rye bread drizzled with local honey. And oh. I mean, you know, some really uh, typical Russian things at, at marketplaces and also the cheeses and the small goods and people cooking shashliki in the Georgian style, you know, shashliks on, uh, on charcoal. So you will find that in the markets. And um, there's, there's a young group of people uh, who's, who call their business Lufka Lufka and that can be followed on Instagram and you'll see that they have markets that pop up all over the place with um, providors bringing really delicious things and you can follow them and see what's happening in sort of the main cities. That's quite interesting. See, I love this. I've been to Russia a number of times, but I've never, I've never done the hipster farmer market thing. So that's something to look forward to. Mm. But let's talk about some more traditional sort of Russian sightseeing. Let's start mm. in Moscow, the mm. capital, mm. grand city. Mm. What's your don't miss Moscow experience? Mm. Well, you know, the <laughs> Red Square is just magnificent. I mean, any season and it's awesome. It's, it's, it's enormous and it's awesome. And considering when it was constructed, um, you know, the, the, you know, the fact that it, it is so vast and enormous and it's got the Kremlin and it's got St. Basil's Cathedral and then it's got that wonderful store, Gum, the, the very, very old department store, multi-storey department store with all the boutiques and interesting architecture. architecture. Yeah, yep. beautiful. And my father used to tell me stories of shopping there with his nanny. So, you know, it really is a, an amazing area. You couldn't possibly miss that. You couldn't possibly miss going to a performance at the Bolshoi Theatre. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's so much sense of history there and culture. And the metro, the subway, you know, Stalin's famous subway, where just art, art everywhere for the citizens. Certainly, 
probably his best, <laughs> only, <laughs> only really good thing. Well, not not entirely, but I mean, certainly we do have to give him the metro, and it, it's it's really worth um, you know jumping on on a train just to stop at some of those stations and the artworks and the chandeliers and the tiling and the craftsmanship that went it's into it. It's magnificent, and mm. the thing that gets me is, I mean, you know, lots of cities these days have mm. art in the subways mm. from Stockholm to Naples, but. This was done in the 30s, mm. and there's 150 stations, mm. I think. And the stations are really, really deep, deep. too. Yes, absolutely. So it's just the scale and the imagination is something mm. Mm. really impressive. So I think there's, there's certainly lots to see, um, and there's a sense of culture around the place. And you can go to the Chekhov Theatre and watch Chekhov productions, and, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of sense of culture. But for me personally... St. Petersburg is a more easily walkable, more tactile place. Certainly you can sort of burrow under the... It doesn't feel like this huge metropolis where you're endlessly having to cross enormous uh, freeways. Mm -hmm. um, there are embankments and little canals and things that you can wander around. And little, and little bridges and, and Yes, and, and there's lots more sort of of that. But you can catch the train from... Um, Moscow to St. Petersburg. If you catch the midnight, uh, I think it's 12.05, it, it goes through the night, which I think oh, is... Oh, the midnight yeah, express to the St. Whole, Petersburg. Yes, it's very romantic, romantic yeah. And I mean, it's very Tolstoy and Anna Karenina and you feel like you're speeding through the sort of um, Russian countryside and and it's and you have your little kind of booth that you sleep in and it's pretty special. And in the morning, the, the tea, Russian tea, is brought round by the Pervednik, the person who kind of looks after your carriage. And then you awake in this amazing city, which is entirely different. It's a totally different kind of scale. And, and it doesn't look like anywhere else in Russia, does no, it? No, no, it, it, it doesn't. And even when it was called Leningrad, it was still always known as Peter's City. Uh, after Peter the Great, who 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 has the, uh, you know, everyone says that he is the one that brought Russia to the West or the West to Russia, and you can see the the magnificent Italianate architecture because he did hire uh, Italian architects, and it's just everywhere. Uh, it's it's really truly magnificent and very walkable. And I mean, if you the square in front of the Winter Palace, the Hermitage, is huge vast i mean all of these squares are huge and vast it's another vast square and if you um if you're a student of the russian revolution and you remember that this is the square where the revolutionary the the, the cannon was fired on the neva river which was the signal for the revolutionaries to storm the Winter Palace. It's actually not entirely accurate, but still. But it's a good story. It's a good story. <laughs> and if you have seen some of the early films from that time, the storming of the Winter Palace and people running across this amazing square to storm this amazing palace, which is now probably the best art art museum in the world, bar none. Oh, it's... Uh, no, uh, it's got literally millions of artefacts in there. It's extraordinary. It is. It's massive. It's massive. And you need to probably get a guide to get around there. But um, the walk from there to, say, the, the Church of the Spilled Blood, which is a magnificent cathedral. Oh, my favourite. Yeah, just stunning. And again, wooden, just wooden. And inside is every surface is covered in magnificent icons. But yeah, trust, trust me on this, even if you're not interested in churches, you want to go to the church on the spilled blood, which totally. is 
thus named because it was built on the spot where a tsar was assassinated. That's which, right. Which I just think has a very Russian sense of drama. Right? Well, <laughs> there well, was blood spilled and there will be a church. Well, that's how, that's how it works. You know, there was a duel here, so let's build a church. So, I mean, there's a lot of that sort of, it's a very, very colourful history. But to walk from the Hermitage along the canals and across the bridges, and it's really quite a nice walk to the, to the um, church of the spilled blood. But there's and there's nice gardens next to that. But there's lots of these sort of little nooks and crannies. And um, it is a more, it's a, it's a more walkable city mm -hmm. and, it, and it's easy to get around. And that's where we found that little restaurant, Yat, just near, near the Hermitage. So, with the, so tell us about this restaurant. Well, just five minutes for, from the Hermitage and we thought we'd get a sandwich somewhere and then we found this little restaurant down in a cellar on the edge of the Moika Canal and run by young people who are resurrecting all the, all the traditional dishes. So, you know, beautiful pilmeni Siberian dumplings and borscht and uh, a, a, a chicken kiev the way it should be made. And okay, so tell me because I only know <laughs> a deep fried chicken thigh i think which no. is tough and unappetizing no. so that's no. not what i should be eating so this they're actually called kievsky katliate so cutlets from kiev yes. or kievsky katliate so it really is a chicken mince um, that is then mixed with garlic and herbs and seasoning um, so all mixed together and then a flavored garlic and and um, herb butter is buried into the middle of that so you have an, a nice oval shape and then that is crumbed Mm. and then fried and so the chicken meat remains moist because of the butter basting, basting it on the middle in the middle so it remains really nice and moist and it's been mixed with all of these herbs and spices etc okay, and now. then when you cut <laughs> through the cut through the cutleta the the uh, butter runs out and it's delicious and of course we had plenty of vodka and we had some caviar and we had some sour cream and i mean you know what okay, was so hang on what's the name of this restaurant again? so it's yat y-a-t it's very you know, it's the kind of place that's really, really simple. So if you ask a travel agent, where should I eat in Russia? They probably wouldn't recommend, this mm -hmm. is not the kind of place they'd recommend. They'd probably send you to a fairly expensive, you know, top of the range. This is really simple. This has tablecloths on it that looks like, you know, the mother has made the tablecloths. And it's very, very simple, but the food was utterly delicious. You can follow them on Instagram, actually, and see that, you know, their stuffed peppers and their cabbage rolls and the things. I drool about that food from over <laughs> here in Australia. Um, and very, very hospitable, very, very hospitable. So what, okay, so what was supposed to be a sandwich ended up being a three-hour three kind of... But, you know, that's the kind of thing that you do need to dig around a little bit, you know, beneath the surface and um, sometimes getting a local guide um, you will get to know the local people much more but St Petersburg is just you know apart from the usual Peterhof Palace and Catherine's Palace uh, you know which is where the the big bucket list numbers are which are these grand imperial palaces which honestly when I sort of looked at them I was I was there with Trotsky and Lenin. I was like, people are starving and you have this palace, let's burn it down. I mean, yeah. beautiful, but so yeah. over the top. They, they are over the top, but um, they still have, you know, they were defining moments in, Aust in uh, Russian's, Russia's history. You know, Catherine the Great, Germanic, uh, you know, what she brought to Russia. She, I mean, she was a feisty woman and actually her amber room 
if you can ever get to see it on a quiet day in Catherine's Palace it's is stunning. is pretty amazing. Is pretty amazing. But also the craftsmanship that was available at that time. I mean, obviously there were an awful lot of craftsmen who whose whole life was dedicated to building these places and creating the most incredible uh, wooden things and stained glass and everything else. So it was certainly a time when all of that was happening. And the gardens are beautiful and, you know, there's so a lot of history. But they are very busy. They are very busy. But, I mean, if you just go for a wander around, if you, if you have a, a guide and go for a wander, or, or if you actually take a canal tour, Mm -hmm. um, as you go down the canals and under all the little bridges, they'll be telling you, you know, this is the palace that was Count so-and-so's, Yusupov's palace, I think, where... where um, Rasputin was murdered. Rasputin yes. was murdered and, you know, so-and-so's house and etc., etc. And, there, you know, you can still visit those and there are lots of galleries and you can get on and off the boats too and, you know, stop somewhere and go somewhere else on the canal. So the, there's plenty to see. And then next to St Isaac's Cathedral with the beautiful dome is is the statue of the Bronze Horseman, uh, which is a novel in verse by Pushkin, who is the sort of father of Russian literature, died in a duel, of course, when he's in his 20s or whatever. But, you know, children still learn the whole novel in verse in primary school so they can recite whole bits of it you know that still permeates the russian culture so there's um the the bronze horseman which is actually a statue of peter on the horse and that's right next to st isaac's uh, cathedral so and i remember staying at the grand hotel europe which is across the uh, across the street from the philharmonia the St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra, mm -hmm. uh, the home of that, and Shostakovich was director there. So they have this wonderful rituals and tradition as part of culture in Russia, so they still r retain a seat at every performance for Shostakovich. Even though he's long dead and gone. Yes, in his honour, in I his honour, which is very special, very there, special. There is a real, real pride and immediacy to culture there, isn't it? Very much, and the new generation are just as much proud of the fact that they can recite Pushkin, they can tell you uh, who died and who lived in war and peace in Tolstoy. <laughs> well, you know, because I never made it to the end, so I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, uh, they are very, very proud of their literature, of their enormous, enormous centuries of literature and music and ballet and, and all I of that. And I remember being so surprised when you told me that you had not so much taken a tour, but being approached by ordinary people who were like, well, I can I can show you some stuff. And that even though they're ordinary people, they have this immense amount of knowledge about their city and the culture in it. Very and much, very much. They're taught, they're taught to be proud of their cities and they're taught to be proud of their history and their geography, especially their history. I mean, in St. Petersburg, apart from that huge history with Peter and... Catherine the Great and uh, the Tsars, there's also the period of the Second World War when Leningrad was under siege for over almost three years. And, uh, you know, they were defending their homeland. So they're enormously proud of that period of time. So they do have a lot of um, special days associated with that. But then it's interesting, people think of them as kind of a show of nationalism. It's actually a show of respect and honouring the people who actually really did save their homes for them mm. um, and respect for them. And there's still some of them alive and you see some of them, uh, you know, on those special days with their medals and things. Um, but there is there is that sense of pride in their culture and their history and their background. So the, the most ordinary person will be able to tell you 
a whole heap of things about their city, which is just wonderful. So you'd really recommend trying to connect with some locals, and if someone comes up and does approach you, be be open to it. Well, we certainly were. I mean, there was one elderly gentleman in the Red Square um, who, and I was not travelling on my own. I may have thought differently about it if I was travelling on my own, but there were three of us and he came in and he was enormously well-educated, but retired and obviously did this to make a little bit of extra money, but just to keep his interest in being, to being able to tell people history of things. So he was just a font of information. He was just wonderful. And we also found... Uh, a young woman at the entrance, or w once you go in beyond the tickets in the Hermitage, she was offering people, you know, her services as a guide, and she ended up being uh, an ex-art student who um, put put time in the gallery to take you around, and she knew all the nooks and crannies and how to get around the back way. And I mean, it's enormously confusing the Hermitage. You <laughs> know, you it's can so vast. It's huge. It's enormous. So having a guide there was just terrific, and she knew all the anecdotes and the the bits about the. Um, the, the, the peacock clock, the famous peacock clock, so she knew all the back history about the Fabergé eggs and, you know, just masses of, masses of stuff. Mm. So um, I've got to bring this back before we finish to food because mm. you've, you've mentioned mm. you know, farmer's markets, mm. you've got your little discovery in mm. St Petersburg, mm. but there's actually really thriving fine dining scene yes. um, with a couple of chefs are really making waves internationally, aren't Well, they? yeah, there's more than a couple, but the ones that are really right out there at the moment are Vladimir Muchin of White Rabbit in Moscow, which I think this week was uh, announced as number 13 in the World 50 Best, if you follow lists. And he's an interesting fellow. He came here and did a, a masterclass with me and we did a four hands dinner together a couple of years ago. Um, which was terrific because he is one of these, well, first of all, his energy is boundless, absolutely <laughs> enormous. I mean, he talks a million, miles, uh, a million miles an hour, but he is resurrecting the flavours, the old, the ancient flavours of Russian cuisine, but reinterpreting as, as modern cuisine. Oh. So um, black rye bread, um, all of the flavours that I can remember, particular berries and... Um, particular curds and kvass, which is a fermented, um, ancient fermented drink that used to be for sale everywhere in the streets, actually, but he uses that. He uses a lot of fermentation, actually, which is now being, in ex being spoken of excitedly in the West, but of course, for cultures like Russia and most of Europe, people have been fermenting things for centuries. So he has a very interesting restaurant and a very um, unique approach to Russian cuisine. And the other one uh, recently that's gotten into the top uh, 50 world's best is the Twins Garden in Moscow. So it is a, a couple of twins, the Berezovsky twins, I think, is their surname. And they are, um, they've got their own farm. So very similar to us um, in terms of, you know, they are harvesting things on a daily basis and also growing things that are really interesting, which is what we're trying to do, sort of specialty produce that, you know, is a little bit out there and different. And they're doing exactly the same thing over there. So again, that interest in provenance and how it fits into Russian cuisine. So they are definitely on the world stage and there's a lot more. There's a lot more coming up and there's a lot more interest at that level as well. Definitely worth a visit. Excellent. So just one last question. 
when we go, are we going to have to drink vodka? Yes, I'm afraid <laughs> so. I'm afraid so. I mean, I think that it's so, so much part of... Uh, how Russians eat and how they celebrate. And certainly if you're at a Russian's table, they will propose toasts and they will uh, ask you to have a vodka shot after the toast. And you can bail out after a couple, but I do have to, <laughs> I do have to tell you that, you know, really if you stick to vodka all night and you don't have champagne and red wine and a cocktail or two or a beer or all the other things that people drink as well, your head the next day is actually fine. If it's a good quality vodka, it's fine. I promise oh, you. Oh, Allah, you're sounding very Russian. The first <laughs> litre of vodka was fine. It was that glass of red wine that tipped me over the well, edge. Well, something like that. Something like that. Allah, thank you so much for coming and giving us your insights. It's a pleasure. Um, so if you'd like to see what Allah and her team are up to, then visit lakehouse.com.au. Or for more podcasts or to catch up on my travels, visit ultiyunka.com. That's U-T-E-J-U-N-K-E-R. Thanks for joining us and catch you next time on I Know This Place.